racism in America, what's coming? That's what we're talking about today on Insights. As we get started, I want to welcome back Eddie Reese to the studio. Welcome, Eddie. It's good to be here, Dave. Yeah, well, I am um, looking forward to diving in on today's topic because obviously of what's been going on since May 25th uh, when George Floyd died. And we need to talk about this. And we hopefully can offer a few things here today related to the direction for us as believers and the church and, our, and finding our voice and these kinds of things. Yeah, um... This morning, as I was driving, uh, I was reminiscing about uh, Martin Luther King and how the civil rights movement began in the black church with uh, uh, using the word of God and where it, it has devolved to today, where the civil rights movement is not really uh, pushed out by the church. And when Martin Luther King died, it was a great opportunity for the rest of the body of Christ of different color than black come together and really begin to push that movement forward. And I think we, we missed our opportunity at that time. But I think today we have another opportunity as a church mm -hmm. to really um, resolve some things. Mm -hmm. um, here, our brothers and sisters in the Lord of a different race uh, hear their struggle, hear, hear their hurts, hear their perceived um, grievances. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so it's time that the church can step up. And I believe that if, if the multiracial church, even though we often don't see that on Sunday mornings, but if that kind of a church, if that can move forward and we can work together in John 17 unity, that's what I believe would um, be the powerful force of healing and health, health to, to people, to, to ethnicities, cultures, but health to our nation. And so we've got to move in this direction of working together. Now, unfortunately, I do believe that there's some side winds that have come upon us, and that's what we want to really look at today in details. We keep in mind that the church is God's answer. The church, we are yes. the ones Amen. that can um, bring true healing and true lasting answers and, and, and remedy so much of what's going on. Now, I'm glad you brought up Martin Luther King Jr. already because I'm going to be reading a quote of his here shortly. But, but before we do... Um, even as we look at all these different aspects during this Insights video, in no way are we trying to let white people off the hook or let Derek Chauvin off the hook. I mean, every person I know, regardless of ethnicity, they were abhorred by what Derek yes, Chauvin did absolutely. on that video when George Floyd dies. I mean, this is no question. horrific. And so... It, yet it seems like there's a still division and pulling and struggling. And I would also throw in there that there's a certain uh, narrative, and I'm going to come right out of the blocks and say a false narrative that the media is pushing. And we in the church, we have to be aware of this because these side winds could take us off course, as I already said. But also, we could end up in the church 
actually, I believe, following the father of lies. Mm -hmm. Remember in John chapter 8, Jesus identified Satan as the father of lies. We in the church, as Christians, we do not want to be in any way partnering with the father of lies. And so we've got to unpack this. And so I hope as a church, multi-ethnic church, we can move forward in John 17 unity mm -hmm. and be the solution. Now, before getting into all of this, I do want to say, Eddie, that I think that white church culture, we need to do a lot better job in terms of speaking on behalf of our Christian brothers and sisters of color, African-Americans, Asian Americans, Hispanics, and so forth, that we have not really stepped up to the plate to bring the healing that we can. And maybe we're, we're uniquely positioned to not be in such a adversarial kind of uh, situation, but actually to champion people that really love Christ, really want to be part of the solution. Yeah. I, I think that would show the uh, African-American church that we really do mourn with them. We, do, we really do weep with them when they weep, and we're aware of, uh, of their pain, okay? Mm -hmm. that, would do, that would go a long way to bring the African-American church and the, uh, the rest of the body of Christ together, I think, yeah. if we just listen to them. And, and again, I believe lasting solutions, this is where it needs to start. It needs to start within the church, within the body of Christ, which includes every person, every ethnicity, and we've got to start being intentional about that. Absolutely. So um, so let's jump into these three areas where I believe these side winds are coming from. And I do believe they're coming from Black Lives Matter, also something called the critical race theory, and then also something else called the 1619 Project. And in terms of what's coming to our nation in the area of racism, it may not be the intense riots and protests and all that's going on um, that we've observed in the last month. Like, in other words, things could diminish, die down, and so forth. But I do not believe this issue is going away. And no. I do not believe we should, should allow ourselves to be fooled or deceived that this is going away. Because of these three things, Black Lives Matter is much bigger and stronger than it was when it was launched in 2013. So Black Lives Matter, we need to discuss but also this critical race theory I mentioned a moment ago, it is being taught in the universities and it has been uh, expanding or multiplying the message of that, proliferating, as well as the 1619 Project, which is newer. So, you know, we want to touch on all of those, but yes, let's start with uh, Black Lives Matter. In terms of what's, uh, what's on their website, um, let me just highlight five of the value statements, five of 15 value statements at their, at their website. And so, um, I want to highlight these because I think they're most pertinent to us as Christians. And again, we're talking about multi-ethnic uh, uh, churches, you know, and, and expressing, you know, our biblical truth that there's some things here that just do not line up, mm -hmm. okay? And so first, uh, Black Lives Matter says, we are unapologetically black in our positioning in affirming that Black Lives Matter we need not qualify our position. To love and desire freedom and justice for ourselves is a prerequisite for wanting the same for others. So, amen, and there's other things there at the website we can find some common ground with, but there are some things here that are troubling. And so, I don't believe that many Christians in America, white or black, are aware of what I'm gonna read next, and that's why we wanna spend time here. Um, so the second one is we make space for transge transgender brothers and sisters to par participate in lead. Um, third, we build 
a space that affirms black women and is free from sexism, misogyny, and environments in which men are centered. Now, it doesn't expand on that in, in the website, but it kind of leaves me wondering what is the role of men in terms of this movement and their perspective where, where men should be in culture and these kinds of things, okay? Number four, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. Now, here I do need to stop a bit. What's being described here is a Western prescribed nuclear family structure. The nuclear family is not a Western cultural concept. We can go all the way back to ancient uh, times in, in biblical times in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Everything was about family. Yeah. Fathers and mothers and children, everything revolved around the nuclear family. And it's not just biblical families, Hebrew culture. It is all kinds of cultures throughout world history that, that the nuclear family is central. And we know that if the nuclear family is healthy, it is the building block of society, of culture, of having a healthy culture. So here would be something else that I'm not exactly sure what, uh, what this is after because it's not described in detail, but it gives me pause. <laughs> okay, and last, number five, we foster a queer-affirming network when we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking, or rather, the belief that all in the world are heterosexual. So again, as Christians, we find something here. There's an undercurrent that's against what, what Christians believe. And, and it's not that we believe that everybody um, in their belief system or their values right now are heterosexual, but we want to help people find Christ so that, that Christ can change them from the inside out. Mm -hmm. And we're not affirming just any uh, sexual relationship or whatever. God is very clear in the scriptures, one man with one woman for life. And so, again, Eddie, I'm not sure how many people in America, whether in the church or not, are aware that these are the values that Black Lives Matter champions. Mm -hmm. Well, once again, Dave, I, I think that uh, I, as a believer, this is eye-opening for me, that um, Black Lives Matter is not being truthful in, in, in really their core values. They, they want everybody to agree with them, and, and we all do. I think as a society, we believe that every life is important, and Black Lives Matter right now. They matter right now, okay? And they're at the forefront, okay? We need to listen to the to the, their issues, okay? But uh, as far as championing their their cause, uh, these these 15, and we've only said five of them, ooh, boy, that, that gives me pause, great pause, because we can't go down that, that road, okay, as believers. So here again, what we already said, but what's coming to America in the area of racism, if we follow Black Matters, we end up in a certain place. But if the church is leading, if the church is unified, if the, the Christians of all ethnicities come together and we can live out a, another alternative and, and speak the truth into it, all this you know, really biblical truth that needs to come forth, God's people can lead in this moment. Um, and so I know this would, will sound ridiculous, but what if the church and our positions in terms of how we bring together the races and how we deal with racism, what if that was more reported on the news and through the media than what Black Lives Matter is doing? Yeah, that, that'd be a, that would be a real change for the better, I believe.
Right, so I mean, just to even take steps in that direction could be huge. Yeah, yeah. Um, just the fact that we would begin to um, voice our opinion, okay, in this, in this, this is a, because these are critical issues. And if the church is silent, then uh, the, the, the fault would be ours as far as if Black Lives Matter, if this initiative that they have here, if it's implemented, then it's our fault because we didn't speak up and I'll offer an alternative. Right. We are living in a moment in American history that if we just go back to, uh, to preaching Colossians 3, because last week we did Colossians 2, and we are not addressing these very issues and what God has to say about them, and we help bring healing to the culture as God wants to bring healing to the culture, and we don't step up and make our voice known and be clear and find our voice in the church, we have missed a massive opportunity. And our American culture, in light of what we're talking about today in terms of racism in America, where is it going? This is going to not end well. And this is not going away, as I already have alluded to. It's not just this area, but other areas are getting right into the fabric of America, and the church must speak out. Yeah. I, I think one of the things that we may have to make clear as the church is, it's not our opinion. What does God say about the situations? Yeah. What does God say? What does his word say about these situations? Okay, mm -hmm. Because uh, he is the final authority. Right, and then we'll be courageous enough in the church to speak it out. First, purging racism in our own hearts, in our own congregations, in the body of Christ, and then letting that go over to the non-Christian culture and speak out into the non-Christian culture. How do you really love people? Now, that transitions us into really Martin Luther King Jr. and some things that he said. And you've already started to, to, to highlight this, and I think this is a good point to do that, and that that Martin Luther King Jr., he had a different, like, vibe to him than what I'm picking up in terms of from Black Lives Matter and other people, Antifa, that are out there um, causing destruction, things like this. Obviously, I think most people know that Martin Luther King Jr. was all about a nonviolent approach. But, but even uh, under, underneath that, the underpinnings of that, Martin Luther King Jr., um, he let his faith guide him. Mm -hmm. It was really interesting when I was reading one article about Black Lives Matter is that they have, um, have distanced themselves from the church. So this is a very um, different kind of feeling, vibe, um, approach that we're getting today versus what Martin Luther right. King Jr. Absolutely. did. And I just want to read a little bit from a, a letter that Martin Luther King wrote from a jail in Birmingham, Alabama. In fact, if, if uh, people want to read the whole thing, just, just Google a letter from a Birmingham jail by Martin Luther King. And this, is, this, this letter, his, his faith comes out, where, where he's rooted in the Bible and the scriptures really comes out. And I'll just be reading a couple sections here. But in this first section, I'll just summarize it. He's quoting St. Augustine and Thomas Aquinas in the scriptures in terms of God's moral values and, and these kinds of things. It's clear he's not just saying, God bless America, like a lot of politicians will. Right. He really believes this and is rooted in it and has studied the Christian faith in the Bible and it's who he is. Now, that is further talked about a little bit later in the letter um, after he talks uh, about about which laws God would call us to obey, which ones it's okay to show some level of civil disobedience. And he unpacks all that. But then a little bit later in the letter, he says, I must honestly reiterate that I have been disappointed with the church. 
I do not say that as one of those negative critics who can always find something wrong with the church. I say it as a minister of the gospel who loves the church. That is who Martin Luther King is. Mm. He's a minister of the gospel of Jesus who loves the church. And he goes on to say that as a minister of the gospel who loves the church, who was nurtured in, it, in its bosom, who had been sustained by its spiritual blessings and who will remain true to it as long as the cord of my life shall, shall lengthen. Mm. I mean, he wants to be true to Christ. I mean, this is what motivated him. And it's such a different feeling from so much of what we're seeing today. Now, later in the letter, he says this, because he was being challenged by other pastors and others too, but about being an extremist. And uh, he gives this, this response, was not Jesus an extremist of love? Amen. And Martin Luther King quotes Jesus uh, saying, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, pray for them that despitefully use you. Imagine if we did that today, instead of burning down businesses and causing so much destruction, about blessing those that curse you and praying for those. This is, this is you know, the kind of guy that Martin Luther King was. He goes on to say, was not Amos an extremist for justice in the scriptures? And he quotes Amos, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. You know, righteousness is doing the right thing before God. Mm -hmm. I don't think God is out burning businesses down. I think that God loves people. And unfortunately, by the way, a lot of those businesses were ethnic minorities. But here what he's saying is let's let justice go forth and let's let righteousness be like a mighty stream where we're doing the right thing. It's interesting um, because there in, Alabama, uh, in Birmingham, um, there was a strike against the bus, bus, uh, bus system, bus transportation. And what, the, what he decided to do was, okay, we will not ride the bus any longer. And it just absolutely uh, brought mayhem to the, the transportation, transportation system. It took their revenue away. Absolutely. Right. Money talks. Right. Yep. What a creative solution Absolutely. to get your point across. And nobody's dying. No one. No one. Yep. Um, you know, and so he continues here to talk, about, uh, to talk about Paul and others, but it's just so obvious that Martin Luther King was rooted in the scriptures and he was letting his faith in the living God take him, take him further. Now, he also goes on here to talk about a few people in history that were extremists. And he says, was not Martin Luther an extremist? And he quotes Martin Luther saying, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. Mm -hmm. Then he quotes uh, John Bunyan, who, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And he's, he says that John Bunyan was an extremist, right? Um, and he quotes him saying, I will stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a mockery of my own conscience. Isn't that powerful? That is John powerful. Bunyan is having to stand up and put his life on the line. Then, then Martin Luther King says this, was not Abraham Lincoln an extremist? He quotes Lincoln saying, this nation cannot survive half slave and mm, half yep. free. And then from, from there, he goes on and says, was not Thomas Jefferson an extremist? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. So he concludes with, by saying this, the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists will we be? And then he closes by asking this question, will we be extremists for hate or will we be extremists for love? 
That's the voice that today the church can give to all of culture. We can read this letter in our white churches today. I mean, any church really, but Absolutely. I'm just trying to speak to my own ethnic uh, background. And it's like, we can be part of the healing. This guy was about healing, not destruction. Mm. Yeah, bringing the races together again, yeah. So again, Martin Luther King was really expressing some real needs and what was going on in his day. You know, how do you look at things today, you know, with Derek Chauvin, you know, he's, in, you know, uh, been convicted and stuff like this. How do you look at the what's going on here um, with with really the explosion that happened here over the last month? Um, it's easy for the white community to say, well, justice was served here, but there's a bigger issue here. It's not so much about Derek Coven, uh, Chauvin, Chauvin. Chauvin as it is about uh, what he represents. He was just a spark that ignited or brought to to fore, uh, to the fore of of what the hurts in the black community, the injustices that they perceived against them, all of these things are, were just roiling up, roiling up, and that was the last straw right there. So really what we're talking about here is past hurts, and even apart from um, what statistics show that there's been this... Um, this difficulty in terms of what what African Americans have have experienced in this nation. Yes, exactly right, exactly right. And um, so, I believe that it's incumbent on the rest of the body of Christ to have our ears open and just listen, listen. Don't come with uh, answers. Okay, mm -hmm. just listen. Enter into their pain. Okay, enter in. The Bible says in Romans uh, chapter twelve fifteen that um, we should mourn with those who mourn and weep with those who weep, okay? And it's incumbent on the body of Christ to weep with the black community, okay? Because they're hurting, they're hurting. Mm -hmm. It's so helpful and, um, and I know, you know, me and, you know, my white friends, we need to step up, we need to do these very things that you're, you're talking about. Um, you know, related to our theme here of like, racism, what's coming to our nation, if the church doesn't step up in some of the ways you're talking about, I think, I think this issue is just going to continue to ignite from time to time whenever, um, you know, there's an injustice that, that is clearly seen like the whole thing with Derek Chauvin and George Floyd. Um, you know, part of the reason that this isn't going away too is because I'm not sure in the church if we've really understood what has come out of some of our top universities. And that is this whole thing called a critical race theory. So I think that rather than a critical race theory helping bring a solution to the situation, I actually think it feeds the situation. Exactly right. And therefore, again, what's coming to America, if we go down this path, I think it's going to be things will get worse and not better. Yep. Okay, and so um, what is this? And let me just read off of the uh, UCLA uh, w website how they define critical race theory. It just says this, that critical race theory recognizes that racism is ingrained in the fabric and system of the American society. The individual racist need not exist to note that institutional racism is pervasive in the dominant culture. This is the analytical lens that critical race theory uses in examining existing power structures. CRT identifies that these power structures are based on white privilege and white supremacy, which perpetuates, perpetuates the marginalization of people of color. 
And so, Eddie, obviously you're a person of color, you're a Hispanic and so forth. And so, you know, this kind of um, teaching, it's, it's not, we're not just talking here about whites and African Americans, although that seems to be the contentious point at the moment, but this is everybody, okay? And so why, th th there's a few things here that give me pause about this. It's not that there isn't racism that goes on out there. But as you read about the critical race theory, there is no way to bring healing and reconciliation to the white community with the other ethnics. The only thing that is really being promoted out there is to abandon the current system, destroy it, and replace it, which of course would be extremely chaotic throughout all of culture. And I don't know if we'll end up with anything better, but what Jesus talks about is he talks about forgiving people. Even in Matthew 18, Peter comes and says, forgive somebody seven times, and Jesus says, no, seven times, 70 times. And that would be true of somebody that's offended you within your own culture, as well as somebody in other cultures, okay? Now, getting back specifically to this, what it's saying is, is it does not matter how much uh, myself and my white friends help with, with um, uh, bridging the gap or, or reaching out to, to colored people or to working, um, you know, where you work in the inner city with uh, Heroes Camp. It doesn't matter. If you're white, you're always still going to be the problem. That's what this is saying because you've benefited from the system, the institutional racism. Now, um, Larry Elder, an African-American, he, he has his law degree, but he has a, a, a radio program and so forth. He's drilled down on this as a black man. And he has said, you know, because of affirmative action, he argued, has argued that blacks can get into university, universities easier than whites and possibly even get financial aid easier. And he's talked about all kinds of things like this within our culture that are typically um, identified as part of these racist institutional systems. And he says, our laws have changed. We have different things. And he is saying that this um, critical race theory actually is, as I am saying, it doesn't help us. It actually causes more division in the long run. And, and again, it's, if you're a white person, you can never repent enough. You'll never be forgiven because you're part of the system. And again, I believe that Jesus wants us to come together, blacks, whites, Hispanics, Asians, Native Americans, everybody in, in, in Christ and be part of the solution together. So when I'm talking about sidewinds that can blow us off course, this critical race theory is a big thing and it's being taught in our universities today. I mean, it's been taught in our universities for almost 20 years now. Oh my goodness. So Dave, I have no idea that this was being taught in our universities. This is, this is very critical that we address this today, yes. Right, and we need to do it within the church because many people are just throwing these terms about, around about white privilege, white supremacy, institutional racist, racism, systemic racism, but if we don't unpack this together in a Christian way, I believe that we will fight each other more and more. So what's coming next to America in the area of racism? It's going to be more fighting, more contentiousness every time something ignites if we don't address this from a biblical, godly viewpoint. And what viewpoint would that be, Dave? Well, part of what that would be is just how God in Christ forgives us readily. And we have heard God way more than we've even heard each other. And yet God readily forgives us. And get this, God never, because of what Christ accomplished on the cross, he never holds our past against us. 
I believe that white people did a horrific thing with, with the slave trade and all that's connected to it and slavery and how slaves are treated, all these kinds of things. But the Christian uh, posture or, or what the scriptures teach is that you forgive people that have repented and you work together towards the solution. Mm -hmm. It's This morning, as I was in Heroes Camp, um, there was a question asked to a young man uh, how his relationship was with his father. If he had a relationship, he says, well, growing up, I, I never saw my father. He was in prison, okay? Uh, and he just in, actually just got out last year. So he was in prison for about 20 years, okay? So he never really established a relationship with his, with his father, okay? Um, but now that his father's out, he says, well, how is the relationship going now? And uh, the young man said, well, uh, it's, it's better, okay? What, did your father initiate that? He said, no, I had to forgive my father. I had to go to my father and say, I forgive you. That gave my father room to now begin to develop a relationship with me. Mm. And it's, it, it's it, by God's grace, it's working. So forgiveness is powerful, Absolutely. even within a family. And oh, by the way, we hurt each other's family members. This isn't just a racist thing. We all hurt each other. We're human beings. We hurt each other. I, I, I know many white people that have been overlooked for job promotions and on and on the list goes. You know, and you could, you could say, well, you know, that, that this only happens in, in between races. Well, obviously not. And in this, this story you just shared, if we can um, realize the power of forgiveness and then apply that between racial lines, we can be together. Enemies can become friends, mm -hmm. real friends. That's, that's the approach that God gives us enemies become friends not just talking about systems and and who's wrong here and all these kinds of things but really to come to new humility repentance and then to to love people uh it, it just is is evident to me that if the body of christ does not uh stand up and get its voice about this problem it's going to continue Right, because we're going to let people, and by the way, everything I read about critical race theory and how it's being taught in universities, I didn't see the scriptures quoted once. My point is this, we're just going to hand the keys over right. to, to non-Christians that are living without the light of Christ, and we're asking them to lead us out of this thing? No, 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 no. <laughs> this is our role as Christians, as pastors, as the church in America. Well, the third area that's, I believe, a side win that can take us way off course here is something that's new on the scene and it is just uh, powerful and it's called the 1619 Project. Okay, so powerful that the main author and, and orchestrator of this within the New York Times, her name is Nicole Hannah-Jones, she uh, just won, just in May, so just about six weeks ago, she won the Pulitzer Prize for this project. There's only one big problem. Again, we're not anchoring things in truth. In this kind of thing, it can again fuel the fires. So let me just read what this is about. Um, so this project was just launched in August of 2019, 400-year anniversary of 1619. And this is what it says. The goal of the 1619 Project is to reframe American history by considering what it would mean to regard 1619 as our nation's birth year instead of 1776. 
Doing so requires us to place the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the very center of the story we tell ourselves about who we are as a country. Okay, so this is going to become the main driving force in terms of, of explaining American history. Now, unfortunately, we don't have time here to really get into all the specifics here. But let me just hi highlight that, that Gordon Wood, a scholar, among five leading historians, wrote the New York Times. And they, it was, this is a forceful letter, and this is what they declared. This 1619 narrative, the project, the, the story it builds, it is not true. That's their exact words. Top scholars saying this is not true. If supportable, the allegation would be astounding. Yet every statement offered by the project to validate it is false. They proceed, proceeded to allege, quote, some of the other material in the project is distorted, while still other material is misleading. And, and just very briefly, one of the things that they, it tries to argue is that the Revolutionary War began with England because the colonists wanted to hold on to slavery. That was their primary motivation, not, not um, taxation without representation, but it's that England wanted to, to abolish the slave trade, but the colonists wanted to hold on to it. And there is not historical evidence that that is true. But you can see how the 1619 Project, how it can get out there, be taught to people, and then and then it can add fuel to the fire that we see today. Boy, that, that's very clear there that, that it would add fuel to the fire. My goodness. It would, uh, wow. Now, um, even more, um, astounding. Nicole Hannah-Jones, she had fact checker, checkers, other people that were checking this project out. But this, this critique comes from Leslie Harris of Northwestern University. She's an expert. She was one of the fact checkers, okay? And she said in a, an opinion piece titled, I helped fact check the 1619 project, the New York Times ignored me. That's the name of her, her article that she wrote. And, and she's an expert on African-American history, okay? She's at Northwestern University, and she says this, I listened in stunned silence as Nicole Hannah-Jones, a reporter for the New York Times, repeated an idea that I had vigorously argue, argued against with her fact checker. So she's not arguing against Nicole Hannah-Jones. She's, she's arguing against her fact checker. Anyway, she, she says this, that she argued against that the Patriots fought the American Revolution in large part to preserve slavery in North America. According to Harris, continuing her quote, slavery in the colonies faced no immediate threat from Great Britain, so colonists wouldn't have needed to secede to protect it. So we're just touching on this here, and unfortunately, um, uh, we're already uh, going a little bit long here today. But this is huge. Now, now think of this. This is, this is why it's huger than huge. Already, the New York Times has created a curriculum designed to inject this new version of American history in, into our schools. Get this, 3,500 schools in all 50 states have already adopted this curriculum. And uh, Random House has developed four 1619 themed books. So this is just going to be read by the next generation. This is going to get in the fabric of who we are. So again, it's going to cause those side winds. And if the church is not discerning, it will carry the church with it. Dave, if we allow this false history to be ingrained in our children, I, I don't see us ever regaining... Um, 
an opportunity to teach the truth, mm -hmm. to instill the truth. It, I mean, if, if they're going to get this teaching from kindergarten up to college and university, whoo, boy, how do you come against that? Right, again, so it's so critical that the church understands what is going on and can actually speak into these issues. Yeah. The, the, it's, he's the father of lies. I think you've already said that. Uh, and, and yeah, um, as we proclaim truth, uh, unfortunately, our children have been uh, will be indoctrinated with, with lies, okay? Mm -hmm. And unless they get a revelation from God, uh, they're going to continue to believe those lies. Okay. Right. And, and this is what I'm concerned about in all three of this, these areas is that we're allowing the 1619 Project now to, to educate us, actually educate us not in the truth but in lies. We're, we're, we're allowing um, critical race theory. That could, that could, again, taint our minds and cause us to think in a, in, in a direction that's not helpful. And again, allowing Black Lives Matter to lead us rather than church leading. Like all of these things together, what they're saying is racism in America, it's only going to get worse. And that we cannot allow that in the church. We can, we're the ones that can bring the healing to this whole thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so let's close here with uh, going back to Martin Luther King in the, in the letter from uh, Birmingham Jail. And he says this, the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. Now, obviously, this is a reference to 1 Peter 4, where Peter says judgment begins in the house of God. God cleanses us first. So that's what he's referring to. And he, he continues and says, if the church of today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authentic ring. Mm. It will forfeit the loyalty of millions. And it will be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. The only thing we need to change in that quote is the 21st century. Amen. And, yeah. you know, it, again, it comes back to us. It's not these other secular movements and scholarship and so forth that bring the true ideas that can, that can, that can bring healing to our nation. It is us. It is the church. It is Christians. Um, so we need to pray, Dave, that the Lord would give us uh, the articulation uh, to address these, these problems because they're, they're only going to get worse. And we have to uh, also pray that even though we say the truth, we have to say it in a way that's not offensive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I don't want to offend the church, but I'm going to start or I'm going to end there with the church. If the church doesn't step up and address these things and God's perspective on racism from the scriptures, all men created equal, we're created in the image of God, right? If the church does not step up and start to give our culture handholds and direction, what we have seen over the last month in terms of everything from riots to businesses burning to the defamation of statues and on and on it goes, we have not seen anything yet. It is us, the church, that must bring the remedy to this situation. Um, Dave, let me end on a positive note. The word says that uh, when things get darker and darker, the path of the righteous gets brighter and brighter. So my hope is that uh, we're going to see believers, their path getting brighter and brighter because they're, they're proclaiming truth, God's truth. Mm -hmm. It's a good word to end on. 
thanks for being with me again, Eddie. And uh, I look forward to being with you next time on Insights.